If you're getting up every day uh, an hour before your alarm and you can't get back to sleep, if you are still doing all your journal writing in the morning, if you're doing your exercise and it's not making you feel better, if you are you know, at a birthday party of your best friend and you just feel like blue tack on the inside, if nothing is feeling better, get to your doctor and let your doctor know. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is episode 248 of the show, and your guest today is me. Um, it's part one of the special, very special book launch episodes where the legendary filmmaker, documentary shooter, adventurer, self-experimenter, and all-around excellent human being, Todd Sampson, interviews me. Uh, you can find Todd on Twitter. He's at Todd Sampson, O-Z, so T-O-D-D. S-A-M-P-S-O-N-O-Z. Let him know that you heard him here. Uh, if you're just joining the podcast, welcome. G'day. Hi. My name's Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host from Australia. I'm currently working on a show called, uh, you, the one you're watching is called The Bachelor, which had our biggest opening night ever. So thank you very much for the help there. That was lovely. And I have a book coming out today. It's on sale everywhere that you buy books. Uh, just Google Osher Ginsberg book. It's called Back After the Break. And uh, or you can get all the book links in my Instagram bio, uh, and it's out today. It is out today. I'm already getting a couple of really fun uh, DMs and photos from people because um, the cover photo of the book it's actually almost like life size. It's a picture of my face. Um, there's people using it, I guess, almost as a as a mask. I guess you know, talking, kind of taking a selfie with it of of them holding it in front of their face, making it look like it's me on their body in interesting locations. Uh, that's kind of fun. Um, if you take a photo like that, that'd be fun to see. Send us your email at gmail.com or you could email it. Email. DM it to me. I'm just so excited today. I'm excited. I'm terrified. I'm excited. I'll tell you about that in a second. Uh, but to celebrate the book coming out, we are putting on a one-night-only show. At the moment, it's only in Sydney. Uh, we are trying as hard as we can to get it to Brisbane and Melbourne. August 30th at Giant Dwarf. A special price for you if you buy a book and a ticket at the same time. Osha.is slash live osha.is slash live it would be lovely for you to come along come and say hi there are songs in the show and they're coming together really well there's even props uh but you'll have to wait and see and in very big news i'm very excited to confirm that the legendary human toe hider the man that has done all the music for my podcast since day one toe hider will be joining me he'll be there to help with the fiddly guitar parts and the uh super high harmonies and tricky chord shapes um, and I'm so grateful. I'm going to have to brush up on my guitar skills because the man is a god of guitar and vocalism and he's a wonderful man and he's helped me very, very much with the songs and I can't wait for you to hear them. I uh, do hope you can make it. It's been a long time since I've played on stage. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, but like I said, if you buy a ticket to the show, you get a book as well, osha.is slash live. So, here we are. It's the day. I've been talking about writing this book for a long time now, and today's the day. How are you? Let's check first. How are you? How's your brain? How's the brain you got given when you came out of the womb? 
Are you doing the things within your control to manage that brain? Are you close to your doctor if you need to be? Are you taking your meds if you've been told to take meds? Are you giving yourself the best chance of healing by caring for the body that you've got to support that brain? I'm talking about exercise. <laughs> Todd and I do talk about that today. Uh, speaking of exercise, uh, this week, actually, I just saw in the extraordinary, rep- extraordinarily reputable journal, medical journal, The Lancet. Uh, was last week? Yeah, there was a massive paper published. Um, had a sample, it's extraordinary sample size of research, 1.2 million people. And the results are pretty clear on one point that on average, the people in that survey, in that research, the people in that, in that research reported 3.36 days of poor mental health per month. All right. So over 1.2 million people, the majority reported 3.36 days of poor mental health per month, meaning, you know, I feel shit today. My brain's on itself. But those who said they exercised through activities ranging from anything, housework to running, whatever, experienced about 1.5 fewer gloomy days per month than the other people that did not do exercise. That's according to the research. Now, there's also a very interesting link later in the paper between exercise and the powering up effect that exercise can have with antidepressant medications if you need to take them by a significant factor, I might add. You, you know, you're basically you're Mario jumping on the block getting the two times, three times coin. All right, that's, that's the difference that it makes. The study also showed, this is super interesting, that while just about any form of physical activity is good for your body and brain, the researchers discovered that certain types of exercise were associated with slightly more mental health benefits than others. Team, spo- team sport was the uh, most positive outcome, uh, 22.3% reduction in mental health burden, uh, followed by my favorite, cycling at 21.6, and then quickly following that, aerobics and gym at 20%. Now, now, bear in mind, you know, every time you look at a research study, you've got to look at how it was collected and who paid for it, et cetera. But um, some of those figures were, well, mo- those figures were, largely self-reported. Uh, for more, I would refer you to the study, but it's, it's pretty clear from here, I'm not making it up, there are positive benefits to moving your body to make your mind feel better, and they are indeed facts. Yay, facts. And the best part about it, the part I love the most about it, is that it is something within your control. Because um, you can't feel so out of control when your brain's just deciding to go against itself when you are kind of stuck in habitual loops of, you know, avoidance behaviors that can lead to, you know, shopping, gambling, sex, addiction, drinking, whatever. You can feel out of control, but you can control so many things in your life. You just, just tiny little simple movements. You can control them, you know, if hopefully you can control most parts of your body. If you don't have the use of some of your limbs, um, you know, you, you could probably talk to your OT or your physio about some exercises you can do, but it does start very small. You can start today. You can start right now. Uh, here's a trick. Make sure you do it every day. We talk about this a bit on this show, but it's I like to call it a habit trigger. Uh, Susan David, who wrote one of my favorite books, Emotional Agility, she calls it piggybacking. So basically, what's something that you do every single day? Pick a thing that you do every single day, right? Uh, You you pee every day, you poo every day, hopefully. You shower, boil a kettle, you walk in your front door, you walk out your front door, you walk to your bedroom, you walk inside your bedroom, you put the stove on, you put the microwave on, you open a fridge door, you check Facebook, you check Instagram. Those are things you are going to do every single day. There's plenty there. Pick one or two. Every time that you do one, I'm not saying don't do them, but every time you do one of those things, do three squats or three push-ups on the wall 
or take two long, slow, mindful breaths. Something so small that when you're done, you're like, well, I didn't really do anything there. All I did was do three squats or I just took two breaths. And the next time you hit that trigger, like tomorrow, add a rep, four squats. Or sit down in a chair if a squat's not available to you. Or, you know, do the push-up on the bench if the wall's a little too easy. Maybe do the push-up on your knees. You know, whatever's – do one on your knees. You know what I mean? Take three mindful breaths. Simple positive habits repeated daily build up over time and form an unshakable foundation on, with, on which the, the, the chance of positive mental health outcomes are built. All right, that's. I talk a lot about this in, because it's a big part of my story, and it's a, it's a it's a big part of my book. Um. So I would I would encourage you to you know it's in taking control of the things that you can, the tiniest little things, man, the tiniest little things, what you eat, how much you sleep. Those little things, you take control of them. One little bit at a time, you start to show yourself, yeah, actually, as a, I can do a lot more about the situation that I'm in as shitty as it is. And in my experience, it went a lot way to, went a big way to turning the corner, helping me push more towards the work that required me to get better and stay better, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I talk about all this in the book and I'm really kind of scared. I'm scared because the book's quite raw. The book's very real. <sighs> But I'm excited to get it out because I know that my own life changed for the better when I heard someone else stick their hand up and share their story. I saw the similarities, not the differences. I saw how I was not a special snowflake after all and what was happening to me was as common as cold sores. When I saw that person who basically shared my story, like they were talking in their voice, but it was like, oh, hang on, that's my, that's me. When I saw that person and saw that they had something that I wanted, something I didn't have at that point, they were married, they had kids, they had a job again, their money was coming back together. I realized that not only had someone with better ideas than me figured it out, and all I had to do was stop thinking I knew what was best and listen to that person, but also that there was hope, that there was hope that things could get better. No matter how much my brain wanted to tell me otherwise, and let me promise you, it was giving me a fairly clear picture. That, you know, because that was true not for my drinking, but it was also true for my mental health. It was hearing other people's stories that gave me the hope that, oh, actually, maybe this isn't permanent. Because I was hopeless. My brain had me believing that how I felt on the worst days was how I would feel for the rest of my life. That's the the what my brain was presenting me with and I just had to keep believing as hard as I could that actually that's false I held on to that hope like Rose holding on to the door at the end of the Titanic and eventually I willingly got into that lifeboat and I pulled the oar and I did the work I try and do I try and do the work every single day and I you know I still make mistakes every day but I keep the work up as hard as I can because I want to, if I do that, I get to stay on this side of the darkness. Because I'm not going to let it rule me. No. Yes, it's something I've had, I've got. It's the brain I've got. That doesn't mean that I can't control many other things in my life. Like I said, I can control how much I sleep, how much I exercise, what I eat, what purpose I go about my day, 
when I can control even the tiniest part of my day, it drives a wedge between my mental illness and my powerlessness over it. And slowly, slowly over time, they become two separate things. And that's just a part of me telling my story, which brings me to my guest today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My guest today is, is me. My guest today is me. A few weeks ago, legendary human, documentary maker, storyteller, adventurer, all-around super handsome smart man, Todd Sampson, came onto my show. And when he did, Todd insisted that one day he interview me. Well, my friends, today is the day. It is an incredible honor to have Todd do this. He's one of the smartest and busiest men on the planet, and he took nearly three hours, three hours out of his day to come to our kitchen and interview me. It's such a marathon that Andy, my producer, and I are splitting this into two parts because there's, there's enough of it in the first bit that you're going to kind of need to take a breath, all right? And then the second part, yeah, that'll be next week. If you like what you hear, please reach out to Todd on Twitter. Let him know. That's where he's kind of most active, T-O-D-D-S-A-M-P-S-O-N-O-Z, sorry, for Australians, Todd Sampson on Twitter. If you like the conversation a whole lot, come see the live show, August 30th. Um, which is basically this, but with songs. Osha.is slash live. Uh, the link's in the show notes on your podcast app. If you really like what you hear, buy the book. The link is now live. Uh, you can get it in my Instagram bio or oshaginsberg.com. So you ready? Okay, I'm kind of scared, but here we go. Just can't take it back now. I've done it, written it. It's up, down people's shelves. It's out. All right, fuck it. Let's make it happen. Come to my kitchen table now in Bronte. For a nice shot of espresso and a deep and lovely conversation with the wonderful man that is Todd Sampson. Okay. Welcome. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Airplane mode. Airplane mode. <laughs> All right. 
<laughs> Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Todd Sampson, father, adventurer, and documentary maker. Uh, I also don't have a podcast. In fact, I've only been on three podcasts, one of which is your podcast, and I've never hosted a podcast, so you'll have to bear with me for this. But as to why, I fell in love with uh, this man after listening to his podcast. I didn't fall in love with Spidey, uh, Andrew G, Osh, Osher. I fell in love with a man who was open, talked about his life, uh, openly talked about mental illness uh, in the spirit of helping others, uh, and a man that was on a journey. And so I wanted to explore that. And when I came on his podcast, I asked if I could interview him. And so here we sit. I'm so thrilled you're here. <laughs> Opposite each other. So thrilled you're here. Now, I'm going to, let's do a little warm up. Yeah. And this is the heart of why I want to do this. Yeah. And uh, which is a simple question on one level, big question on another. Who are you? Who am I? Yes. Now, before you answer, I just want to read what the Oracle says and what the Oracle says you are. Also known, unfortunately, as Wikipedia. Uh -huh. So... Osher Ginsberg, not Gunsberg, not Unsberg, Ginsberg, uh, born Andrew Ginsberg, widely recognized by his former stage name, Andrew G, is an Australian television and radio presenter and journalist who is best known as the host of reality TV series, The Bachelor Australia, The Bachelorette Australia, and Bachelor in Paradise Australia. He's also known for hosting roles on Channel V, uh, live to Dance on CBS and radio shows, including Take 40 and The Hot Hits. Is that you? Well, they are describing someone who's done the jobs I've done. They missed Australian Idol, which was seven years of my life. Uh, oh. <laughs> Wikipedia. Wikipedia, the uh, Oracle. Is that you? Um, that's, you know, that's, a list of, that's a list of jobs I've done. Um, uh, am I a journalist? I don't know. I've had a journalist visa. Uh, <laughs> I've travelled from country to country on one of those. Um, I don't know. I'm just a. I am a. I'm a. I'm a man. I'm 44 now, so I'm a. I'm a man who is passionate about uh, trying to be the best I can be for myself and for others mm -hmm. every day, and I'm passionate about the things that excite me. And thankfully in my life, I found very early that that started with music and through that being excited about music and wanting to share that with others and the excitement of being on stage, which I talk about in the book, um, was something that I always wanted to share and explore and, and somewhere along the way, I started getting paid for it. Mm. And that's the thing that I could never believe, that I'm getting paid to do the thing that I love. And it, essentially, I got paid to do what was my coping mechanism um, because uh, very early on, I was around, I think I was around three when I had my first proper epic, the floor is falling out from underneath me, panic attack. <laughs> and Three is young. Yeah. And then there was another one at five. And, and that was the five one was when I was the, the ruminating anxiety really, really began. And that was the one that was, and anyone that's experienced it will know when the, 
it wasn't just a, a pain in my head. It was a physical agony uh, that doubles you over and, and your hands don't work and you, you, you can't speak and your lips tremble and your mouth muscles don't work properly. And what would happen is that, you know, then suddenly I'm like, oh, my goodness, this feeling is inside my body. I can't escape it. I can't run anywhere. I can't go and hide in the backyard. I can't hide under my bed. It's with me. Mm. It's inside It's inside me. And that is terrifying, right? And then you have this fear of the fear because then you start going, oh, I feel good this morning. You wake up and you go, I feel good this morning. I didn't feel good yesterday. Why didn't I feel good? Oh, that's right. And then it's back again. And then bang, and then bang, and then bang. Like it just comes that hard. At that age. I was pretty young when it happened. And knowing, and I kind of walked around the whole time with this, it's inside me and it can just drop at any time. All I have to do is remember the trigger point or get triggered by something and then bang, I would go straight to it. The only thing that took it away, the only respite was being on stage. Was- Pause there. <laughs> Pause there. Because well, I want to go there. Yeah. And, and so I'm working off a hypothesis that those that listen to your podcast and have listened to it recently, they know the amazing person you have become. But I'm going to work off the premise that there's a large group of people, and I was one of them, mm-hmm. that ha- hadn't listened to your podcast. Mm-hmm. So they, what they see on television or mm-hmm. what's reported in the media is who you are yeah. until they listen to your podcast. Yeah. And I think there's a disconnect between those two. Not something you've done, but something the media has created. And mm. if you haven't had a chance to follow Osher's incredible journey, well, you're going to follow it now. <laughs> and I'm going to go back to your youth, but I, I still want to stay on, on who you are, Osher. So yeah. let's do a little, because you, you have now, you have incredible self-awareness. Let's do a little exercise uh, of what other people would, what they would say. So if I asked specific people, who is Osher? Yeah what their response would be. Can you make them really short and I'll do a rapid fire of a couple of people. This is to warm us up. Hit me, hit me. So, um, Audrey. So if you don't know, Audrey is is Osher's wife. Well, how would she describe you? Who would she say you are? The, the, The kind of jumpy, sometimes petulant child man that she lives with who was very sick when she met me and, uh, is working uh, hard and tries very hard to not fall over himself constantly <laughs> uh, in making enormous mistakes in being both a husband and a stepfather. Um, and while he's super annoying, he tries just a little bit more, so I'll let him get away with it. <laughs> okay. Nick Cummins. <laughs> Who is our current hero bachelor. Um, Nick would. Now, it's been reported that you guys are not best friends and um, you're not lovers and you're not. And I, look, I, I follow The Bachelor, so uh, uh, I, I always question your sources, Todd Sampson. Totally, totally. I'm not saying that that's a given, but what, what would he say <laughs> if I asked him? Uh, Who is Osher? Actually, he's like, oh, he's, the, he's the one guy I get to speak to. Who isn't a? Uh, he's just a, a guy on the show. I'm not a producer. I don't. You know, we just talk. I don't suggest anything to him or direct him in any shape or form. I just ask him questions, and we speak and we talk and we. How uh, would he describe you, though, if he had to put some words to you? Um, what do you think? Guessing. <laughs> Guessing. <laughs> Self awareness through other people's uh, eyes. No, he'd probably go. Oh yeah. He gets it. He understands the meditation thing. He knows why I do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he'd say. Okay. He meditates. He's an interesting cat. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's into crystals. His self-talk's really fascinating. Yeah, he's got this really interesting warrior mindset. He's just like, adapt and overcome, adapt and overcome. Like, he's been a wallaby. He's had the, the, the Formula One team level sports psychologists for a decade of his life. The guy is dialed in when it comes to adversity. I'll tell you, if there's one thing I've learned in my life, nothing is as it seems. <laughs> Your father. Um, my dad would probably say, um, uh, oh, he's my, he's my second. I've got four boys. Uh, he's number two. Um, he uh, he always tried. Um, he was he. I used to enjoy watching him play. He was musical. Um, I missed him when he went away. Um, proud. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. I'm very. He'd be. Very, he's very proud of all his boys. All I'm probably the lowest achieving of all my brothers. Oh. Oh yeah, my brothers. Really? Are, oh my goodness, my so brothers what is, are, what are the other, weapons. What Absolutely. have they done? Just briefly on each. Of them. Uh, in the corporate world, uh, my number one and number three brother are extraordinarily successful men, and uh, in the technology world, my youngest brother is a, a is a savant. He's wow. an autodidact who dropped out of high school and yet uh, is like a higher level of engineer, uh, engineering capability than men twice his age, you know, when he was 17, 18 years old. He's an extraordinarily talented man. And they're all very, very, very successful men um, with great relationships and wonderful families. Did you always have a great relationship with them? Did, were they always more successful or perceived as more successful throughout when you were growing up? I, um, it was no, the, the growing up stuff uh, was a little tricky. We, you know, like many other people, we had a, we had a, our parents broke up and it was a little, little bumpy for, for a while there. But as, as we became adults and you, know, you go through that period when you, you basically you break up with your parents, yes. right? And then you become your own human. And then as adults, we all managed to kind of find our way again. Um, I, through my, you know, and I talk about this in the book, through my drinking and using, I, I did manage to alienate and, Damage those relationships with my brothers um, yeah. fairly decently, um, but in the last still ten, to this day. Uh, well, in the last ten years in sobriety, I've um, gratefully through through their uh, extraordinarily kind hearts and uh, uh, work on my part and work on their part, we have all formed a, a really quite lovely, lovely, lovely bond. And uh, certainly around um, more so, and it's sad that it happens, but I think, you know, there's a way that humans are programmed this way around the loss of a parent, certainly yes. around when my mother passed away and we all came together in a really beautiful way, but not just us, but um, the the wives and husbands of my brothers, we all bonded very, very, very strongly and we kind of reformed this tighter bunch of like, okay, well now, you know, we're this kind of more of a raft rather than logs floating down, floating down the river. And so the last last two years, three years has been really, really lovely um, between, between the four of us. I want to stay here for a little bit. Sure. Uh, because one thing I think that happens in life is a lot of, we are our choices and we are our decisions. Yeah. And a lot of those decisions happen in a room that we're not in. And yeah. they have a dramatic impact on our lives. Yeah. And you've made lots of decisions in your life. Some mm. you've had control over, some you haven't. Mm -hmm. um, you didn't have control over your parents breaking up. Mm -hmm. um, can you remember how they explained that choice that they made to you? No, not really. I just remember um, 
Uh, it was a morning, I think it was 1985. It might have been 1986. This has been something in adulthood that I've had a very difficult time figuring out that there's a good year and a half there that I'm like, I know I was there. I wonder why there was school photos. Yes. <laughs> I know I was around, you know. Um, but yeah, I just remember it was a Saturday morning and Sting's hauntingly spooky song, The Russians, was on the radio. And mum was trying to, dad was trying to say something. I'm like, no, it's my favorite song. You can't. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I've got to play it. And I know this now because, you know, my stepdaughter George is the same thing. It's like, shh, it's my favorite song. <laughs> and so he waited until that song da, 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 finished. And then I remember turning it off and fading it down. I go, okay, so what's so important? <laughs> and it's like, mum and I are getting separated. <laughs> and just, it was around the breakfast table, you know. But it was, was it left at that? Um, well, it was fairly obvious. There was it was a couple of years where it wasn't you know wasn't so great. I don't think any marriage is uh, good one minute and over the next. It was you know it was it it, it was ob- it was fairly obvious that things were rough between them. Yeah. And then, can you remember how you reacted? Um, at the time, I I just I just kind of went numb, which was the way I, I dealt with a lot of you know difficult situations. At so, age wise, how old are you at this stage? Eleven. Oh, so you you are old enough to kind of really get a grip, or at least begin to understand. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I remember that. I remember like quite early on, I, I had a uh, a stress response that was almost automaton. Like wow. danger mode was okay, just full robot. You know, we just was going to program mode, right? There's no emotion involved, and it made me really good in um, later on. You know, when I went into into broadcast, actually, and things get hairy when you're live, um, the emotion just vanished out of my body, and I was just like, okay, there's the camera, there's a thing, we've got to go here, bang, bang, bang. All right, we're cool, no problem. And only afterwards you go, holy shit, <laughs> that happened. But do you remember? Do you do you remember it triggering anything? Like, so what? What is your best memory? Your most the funnest thing you can remember prior to that as a child? What stands out? Um, it would be being on stage, Todd. It would be um, because that was the moment. It was, oh, I think I was about nine, eight or nine. Every Friday we did a school assembly at, at school and each school each class took turns to go on stage and do a little skit or a, or a play. We're here to talk about <laughs> recycling, you know? <laughs> yes. You know? Oh no! You've put the thing in the wrong bin, Dial. It's all right, love. You know, never was you know playing the roles about that kind of stuff, and, and I can't remember what my line was. I can't remember what it was, but there was a setup. Was on stage, and I remember standing in the wings, having the butterflies in my tummy. I could see all the gaping faces in the front because they're five, you know, the front rows of grade ones and grade twos. And I remember I walked out and I just saw all these people staring at me, waiting for me to say the line. And I don't remember what the line was, unfortunately. But I, I, you know, the, let's just say. That's not what I told you. And then, bang, the whole room erupts in applause and <laughs> laughter. I was like, and my head just went with the fireworks of <gasps> approval. Oh, yes. yeah, I want this feeling. And what was amazing, though, that it was only on stage for maybe 30 seconds, 40 seconds, but that circling kind of fear is always there was just not there for like 30, 40 seconds. I was like, oh, my God, I was at peace. I want to do that again. 
And so from then on, I just ch- I just chased that, and that was the feeling. So I, I did everything I could to be on stage. And my, to ask about answer about your happiest times, it was always when I was on stage. When I was, and so I started playing guitar and I started singing in choirs and whatever I could do to be on stage is what I that because it was when I was there that I was like, oh, I'm not afraid right now. But was that even prior to eleven? Mm-hmm. So it was prior to eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at because uh, I I want to not park mental illness because it's a big important part of who you are and I it's one of the reasons I admire you so much because I think you do a lot of good by talking about it and I think not talking about it is a major part of the problem but I don't but you're not mental illness you're more you're more than you're ever you're lots of yeah. things you know as, as I hope we will uh, we we will explore but I wonder how much of that time was a trigger for you or were you is it innate for you to be on stage like do you just love performance and the feeling of the performance or because now you talk a lot in other podcasts about yeah. using you you've managed to take men- mental illness and turn it into an incredible successful skill that you use across everything across the bachelor across yeah. idol you've used it in music and but i just wonder if it was always there or is it a result of of uh, of mental illness uh, that's a good i don't know you know it it might it might be that you know i have this this head that I've got born with this brain that has a want to ruminate and wants yes. to just loop and just not let go until something's done. And that can either be very helpful when it comes to my job because it's I just keep going. Even when other people fall away, I'm just I just keep going. Yeah. I can't I don't know how to stop. And um, but it can be really bad as well because then if the when it when you throw a fear into that machine, it just can just grind me. It's like the Death Star laser turning yes. back on itself. Right? Yes. Um, I think the part, honestly, to be honest, part of wanting to be on stage is an, is an ego thing. That yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I, I, my ego had has done some pretty decent damage in my life, but you know, and chasing that, chasing that feeling of oh, everyone's looking at me. This is awesome. Yeah, that absolutely played a role in in my life. The thing I would say though is that you, one of the super positive things about mental illness and you is how you have reframed it and there's been a lot of studies especially with early onset um asperger's and and that if the parents are are able to reframe it not as necessarily as a superpower but as a positive thing because it's often viewed immediately as negative yeah and then you then it spirals you even further but you are proof that you are open about your mental illness and years and years of dealing with it in lots of different ways but you're also proof of someone who has turned it and used it as a positive in your life without pretending it doesn't exist. Well, it, it was that took a long time because, to be honest, it, trying to fight it is the initial response. You know, this is awful. I can't, I can't enjoy the day outside. I can't smile. I'm sitting in this room full of family at an event, and all I want to do is run away. Like, it's you want to escape this feeling. You want to do everything you can to escape this feeling. And I escaped it through drinking, through using, through any other kind of avoidant behavior, gambling, masturbation, you name it. I did it trying to get out of this, just escape from this thing that was inside my body. And, you know, the analogy would be is like, why sit there and and cop constant 10 foot sets on the head when if you just learned how to surf, you could enjoy it. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> you know exactly, and that's the analogy, you know. So I've been trying in the last few years now um, because it's it's just so much bigger than my capacity to to avoid it. It's so much bigger than my capacity to um, 
to try and run from it. Uh, it's impossible. So my only choice is to go with it. And my only choice is to go, okay, so there it is. Okay. All right. It's bigger today. Well, it's not as big today. Um, but you not only have gone with it, you've managed to use it as a skill. And, and I guess the thing is for those that are, uh, and we all are to some extent, but for those that are dealing with mental illness, sometimes it's, it just can be dark and it, and no hope, you know, mm. that you, you, you become so much focused on that itself that you forget that there, there is, there is a positive to it. Mm. You can, through self-awareness and through training, and you can mm. make something of it. And you're proof of that. Because it's not like you just did something. You became one of the most, and you are one of the most successful entertainers in the country. That's wild. And you, have mental, yeah. and you have mental illness. Well, look, I've got to be honest with you. Like, I, got a, I've, I had to get a lot better before that was possible. I had to be on antipsychotics for a long time before my brain was healthy enough to do this sort of stuff because the switches in my head that allow the new neural pathways to be formed were just not flicking on. Okay, let's right. go back to that because that's another choice or decision that you made in your life. Yeah. So there was a time when you knew that things were different yeah. uh, in your head and there was a time when I'm sure you were just one phase where you were just struggling with it, another phase where you were conscious of it and trying to do something about it. But then there was another phase where you decided that you mm. would take medication. Can oh, you yeah. take us through that? <laughs> yeah. So the first time I took, um, I, I refused medication the first time it was offered to me. Uh, I just started working at Channel V in uh, 1999. And I was only here, I was here less than six months, uh, uh, here being Sydney. And I was having dreams where I was spitting out my molars. I was drinking every day, trying to deal with the stress of it all. It was highly, I was 25. It was, it was a highly stressful. I was doing a job I absolutely loved, but I was very stressed about trying like not fuck it up, basically. And I was drinking every day, and I was I was really stressed. And um, I called my dad up in Brisbane, and I said, "Hey, look, I'm I'm not I'm not coping. I'm having nightmares every night. I'm kind of grouchy all the time, and I, I I'm, I'm drinking a lot to manage it." He goes, "Well, go see the psychiatrist." I went to go see a psychiatrist at the top end of town. And he said, um, look, just drink way less coffee, cut down the alcohol, and here, have some antidepressants. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You, no. <laughs> I'm just fine with my beer my beer medication. And yes. You can fry coffee from my yeah. cold, dead hands. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to take your drugs. And he said, uh, how long do I have? I said, how long do I have to take them for? And he goes, oh, you'll just take them for a while, and then your brain kind of rewires, and then you'll come off them, and the new pathways are there, and you'll be all right. And, but I, I did not want the drugs. Yes. I didn't want them. And yes, there is an unfortunate stigma against the medication. Yeah. And, and I, I think skepticism is important, but the stigma is not right. Well, I can honestly say you, I, I, I wasted 10 years of my life. Mm -hmm. I wasted 10 years of my life having, not, having made that decision because I spent the next 10 years of my life gritting my teeth, fingernails in the dashboard, trying to get through life using alcohol to try and try and manage what was getting progressively worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. But I want to know what brought you to the decision that you thought it was bad enough or serious yeah. enough for you to medicate because there'd be a lot of people listening. Yeah. Uh, I'm one of them and there's many, most of my friends that have, there are degrees of anxiety. Mm. There are, yeah. you know, of course, there everything is on a spectrum. Yeah, of course. Uh, and you would never, I, I know this from knowing you, you would never recommend to someone run straight to medication. Like, because uh, most no. people are carrying something mm. around with them. What brought you to that? What brought me? Well, I had been struggling with uh, I was hiding in my house a lot. I would go 
I, at that point, I'd left Channel V, so I was doing essentially a, a, a five-day weekend. I worked Sundays and Mondays. I'd put all of my work into those two days, and I had from Tuesday to Saturday off. I would spend most of those days in my house, in my apartment, not leaving the house. I was too afraid to leave the house. I was too afraid of strangers. I'd wear a trucker hat down like that. I'd navigate. If I did have to go out of the house, I'd navigate by looking where people's feet were going. I was so afraid. I would, the only time I would really leave my house was to get up in the morning and go for a run on the beach. But I just I was so not connecting with any other human. It was as if I I didn't exist. Like I, I'd run on the beach and not see. I'd not look at anybody. I would just just look at my feet and I'd just do laps on the soft sand, and then I'd run home and shut the door and hide. And it was on one of those runs. I was having a particularly bad day. Um, I was having a particularly stressful day, and I'd started seeing this doctor already. And he was—he said the same thing. He goes, "You may want to, you know, consider medication, and you may want to, you know, cut down on the alcohol." So, look, I'll just—I'll be fine. You know, why do I need medication when I can just have a couple of beers and feel all right? And he goes, yeah. "Well, that's a stupid idea." <laughs> but of course, at the time, I was still full of ego. I'm like, "No, no, no, I know better. I don't." Um, and I was running on the beach. I'll never forget it. I was running south past the North Bondi Surf Club, and. And in the soft sand, doing the, the soft sand shuffle, and uh, because running had become such a way of me, it was it's a it's a you know non uh, medical and it's a drug free intervention for anxiety and, and you know releases the things in your body that starts to make you feel better. But by that point, those things in my body had no way; they were nowhere near powerful enough to deal with what was going on in my head. And I felt the physical push of someone against putting their hands as if someone was standing on my chest. And that was very, very strange because there was nobody there. And, and, and as I ran further, I actually felt as if someone's hands were around my throat, crushing my throat. And I'm not I – don't, I don't know how else to put this, but I actually felt the tactile sensation of touch upon my skin. It wasn't just a crushing sensation. Yeah. I felt as if there were things touching – doing that trying to trying to brush it off but it, that's how powerful this can be and it was a crushing sensation around my throat i was i was <sighs> it was tr- hard to breathe and i remember i just ran straight home and i called this doctor i'm like i have to see you today i've got to see you today and thankfully he squeezed me in and um he put me on a on a drug as a, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or an ssri um, so he, just for those that don't know, um, serotonin is uh, on a basic level is what makes you feel good. And the inhibitor yes. blocks the reabsorption of the serotonin in the brain. So it allows you to feel better over uh, periods of time. Yeah, but it's uh, it's not like a Panadol or no. a Nurofen. No. So they take a couple of weeks to kick in. Um, but I remember he was very kind and he saw me. On the, he had to go and speak somewhere like that night. And uh, he, he, he made time for me. He squeezed me right in and he gave me this drug. And then it was about... About two or three weeks later, I started to feel a lot better. And it was about six or seven weeks after that that I was like, why did I waste nine years of my life not doing this? So just advice, Osher, then. (laughs) Advice for uh, some young person that might be listening to this podcast uh, that is maybe feeling um, unknown, really. Maybe a bit confused, but feeling a sense of depression or anxiety. Uh, what, what's your practical recommendation and, and when should they seriously consider medication right. in, in your opinion? Uh, you know, I'm not, by the way, caveat to this is Osher is not a psychiatrist, neither am I, no. but this is through life experience, right? Yeah. So what would be your recommendation? I'm not, I'm not a doctor. Yeah. I'm the son of two doctors and I, I, you know, I don't pretend to be a doctor on the internet, okay? yes. but I will tell you. If you're finding there's and there's plenty of information out there about about drug free interventions for anxiety and depression. All right, if you're getting up every day uh, 
an hour before your alarm and you can't get back to sleep. If you are still doing all your journal writing in the morning, if you're doing your exercise and it's not making you feel better, if you are you know, at a birthday party of your best friend and you just feel like blue tack on the inside, if nothing is feeling better, get to your doctor and let your doctor know because it's progressive. Yeah. All right. It is a progressive thing. It's not going to go away by itself. And these things get worse over time. The earlier you get them, the, the, you might even be able to get away without medication. All right. There may be some other interventions that your doctor can help you with. It'll help you get away without medication. But the earlier you get to this, the less likely, in my opinion, the less likely you are that it might develop into something more, more serious or the quicker you can get, I have something, if it is more serious, identified earlier and you can get right on top of it and start that reframing we talked about earlier. But yeah, so if things aren't feeling great, get to your doctor and just uh, understand that medication isn't, uh, you're not raising the white flag. You're taking a powerful choice of action to make your life better because you're worth more than waking up an hour before your alarm in, in terror. Your life, you know, that's not what you're supposed – that's not – you know, yes, uncomfortable feelings are the price we pay for happy feelings. You know, we can't have only ever happy feelings. We do have to feel the converse, but they should balance out, all right? If you are constantly looking and feeling that this lens is of negativity is over everything, there might be a few switches that need to get lubed up so they can flick back to happy, okay? Now, you don't need – in my experience, you might not need to be on medication forever, okay? Um, and you're you off now. And you've been I, off. I'm off now. And yeah. we, we can talk about that because that's, yeah. that's very important because it is under very strict supervision yeah. and it has been under guidance the whole time. So try to think of medication as like, remember that time that you did your ACL, all right? You, you need all you've, you know, you've done, you've seen, you've, we've all seen someone who hurt themselves at touch or, or netball or whatever and they've either got strapping tape or they're wearing a little brace or something like that. Imagine the medication is like that. The medication is like a little, uh, like a knee brace or some strapping tape or something that will help support that joint while the muscles learn how to move again in a healthier, correct plane of movement and are strengthened enough while the rest of the joint heals. And then once the joint is strong enough and you've done these exercises, you've got these exercises that physio gives you every day, soon the joint's strong enough, then you can take the tape off, you can take the um, the brace off and then slowly you reintroduce yourself and then slowly, slowly, slowly. You're, now you've got this new, healthier, more correct plane of movement that your muscles are dialed in on. You're like, oh, right, now I can I can turn when I run and I don't get that, that you know, pinchy feeling that I used to get in my hip. Oh, this is good now. And you've learned how to do it properly. That's for me, that's the analog of what medication does. It just gives you that support base while you do the work. You can't just take it and think everything will be ace. It's, it, it won't. That's the old and olden way of yes. psychiatry is like just sedate it and it'll be fine. It won't. All right. You've got to do the work. Medication is just one part of it. You've got to do the work. But if you do the work, in my personal experience, if you put your nose to the grindstone and do the work, um, you then fortify yourself with this whole new set of skills and tools that your brain then learns how to use. And for me, I was so lucky that my, my brain healed enough to the... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Point where the new neural pathways started to take hold. When I was really sick, Todd, I, I was unable to challenge the negative thoughts. As I was unable to reframe. I, I knew this was an irrational thought. I knew that there's no way that this thing that I'm fear, fearing is true. But my brain was like, we don't care what you think. This is happening today. This is going down. We don't give a shit what your rationaliz- rationalizations are doing. And, and I, I was powerless to, to stop it. So I, I want to change pace because we're going to come back to this again. Yeah. I want to change pace slightly to another major decision you made in your mm. life. But before we leave this, yeah. it is worth just pausing on the incredible optimism of modern science. Yeah. So for many, many years, n- you know, nearly 70 years, science told us that our brain was fixed. Uh, that is all proven. You're born with the brain you have, and that's that. That's proven definitively to be false. Mm. And what you were referring to throughout what you just said is indirectly what brain plasticity is about. Mm. And I spent six years of my life studying this and documenting this. And I can say there's an incredible, incredible optimism associated with it, which is we all have the ability to change our brain. And very, it's not about, you know, online gaming or whatever that might be. We all have that ability, no matter how dark it is, or no matter how good it is, we all have the ability to change our brain and to rewire those pathways, as you mentioned. And, uh, Again, not a psychiatrist, but I will recommend if you have if you are feeling down and and please contact professionals and or look into cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. From my experience through all my studies of the brain over the last six years, cognitive behavioral therapy is an excellent form of of self awareness. I use it. Yeah. Uh, and it would be very good and potentially very healthy for you. The, the, I, I I would agree with you. Um. On, on you know, just one extra caveat. Um. I know you may not have experienced it, and, and thankfully not. Like, if you are experiencing the the levels of psychosis that I was, yes, uh, the ability for you to have those challenging ability, the challenging thoughts that the CBT teaches you, just goes it's out impossible. the window. That's impossible. Right. It's yeah. like, like I know, I, I I know this is true, but the part of your brain that accepts it to be true isn't working. All right. It was like when my, when my when I got really sick and my friends were like, mate, you just should have called me. We could have talked about it. It's like you could have told me for three hours totally. everything was fine. And the part of my brain that would have accepted that and felt better, it was broken at the time. So it wouldn't have worked. Um, the yeah. other thing about CBT, uh, which has been really powerful for me in my life, I, I studied CBT and I learned how to use it after I got lots of acronyms coming. Um, There's an excellent Australian. I noticed you you also had the same book, uh, Sarah Edelman's book. Uh, by the way, if you haven't read it, I think it's uh, yeah, yeah, cha- so Change the Way You change Think. I, yeah, yeah. I change your thinking. Yeah, I have uh, I, I have that book as well. Yeah. Uh, it's excellent read. Excellent read. Um, so CBT is was really powerful for me after I got diagnosed with PTSD when I came back. Uh, we were in New York on September 11. We were safe, but I really I was pretty messed up. Um, so that was very helpful for me. But I found since that CBT, uh, I use it in conjunction with a thing called um, acceptance commitment therapy, ACT, yep. because CBT doesn't allow for any emotion. Yeah, and that's that's the thing that I was kind of stuck with. Like ACT is like. It's okay to feel sad about this. Yes. It's okay to feel sad about this. I've got room for the sadness because I've also got the ability to cope with it, which CBT doesn't really yep. let you know. But interestingly, on CBT, just so you know, there's a um, 
there's a, a I don't know if you're familiar, but there is there is a, a group of people known as Alcoholics Anonymous. Their uh, yes, their main piece of text that the the program is based upon is they formerly know it as the big book and a guy by the name of bill w a great documentary on netflix by the way bill w um basically invented cbt in the 1920s well before ellison and what's his face showed up like basically invented the idea of okay here's your automatic thought let's challenge that mm. it's freaking amazing yeah. yeah i mean i i deal with fear a lot uh, especially with what i do yeah. <laughs> i'm in fearful situations you don't just deal with it you're I, like yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna deal with fear with four cameras and two drones yes but it's you know it's a, mis- a it's a misconception to believe that uh whatever i i'm brave or bravery is an inherent thing uh that bravery is learned and and it's part yeah. of that is cbt so let's park that for a moment and move to another massive choice in your life yeah Australian Idol. So for me, having just arrived in Australia and uh, I, I could remember seeing how beautiful you looked, your white teeth, how so different you were to James. You know, yeah. it was like, wow, okay, these are two different people. Take me through that decision. How did Australian Idol come to you? We were doing a live, three-hour live request show. You'd come straight from Canada? I right. was I was living in South Africa at the time. You're living I, in South I, I Africa. Was born in Canada, but I, okay. I was living in You're living South in South Africa. Africa. So you probably would have seen TRL on MTV yes. in South Africa, which is a, a studio and it was a host. There was heaps of fans in the studio and pop bands show up. Our studio was based on the the Canadian music channel called Much Music, and they had a studio in Toronto. I can't remember what street it was on in Toronto, but it was basically a three-walled studio open to the street. Okay, the fourth wall was open to the street. And so the cameras were the fourth wall, theatre term. Anyway, uh, it was um, freaking amazing, all right? So we were hosting three hours of live request televisions, time before YouTube. If you want to watch your video, you had to send us a fax, Todd. <laughs> um, and we were th- hosting three hours of live TV every single day. We were traveling around the world with AAA laminate passes around our necks. We have access to every festival on the planet. You know, I, I remember, completely remember going overseas Driving down Sunset Boulevard, seeing a poster. Oh, this band is playing at the, you know, the Wiltern tonight. Calling someone in Australia who called a record company there, who called a record company in LA, who called back, who called back, who called back. Within two hours, my name was on the door. All right. That is the life that we were living. Okay. And then I get this call from Freeman. Just wait now, just to put a caveat onto that. So you were doing all of that while also having somewhat self-awareness that you were struggling and dealing with mental illness. Oh, yeah, but I was drinking beer. Everything was fine. Okay. Okay, keep going. Sorry Sorry to interrupt. Just wanted to clarify that. No, 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 everything was fine. Everything was fine. A couple of beers. A couple of beers. I'll be right after a couple. Oh, I really need a drink. A couple of beers will be fine. Let's have Mm. a great... I'm dying for a beer. Let's have a beer. Let's have a beer. I don't know. It's only... Yeah, it's fine. We don't have to do any more work today. It's great. Let's have one. Um, So, yeah, that's how I was getting by. Uh, Not a good strategy, by the way. So, I... Was at my desk, and I was—I was, was still hiding in the house a lot at this point. I was, you know, I was very avoidant. I was quite afraid of strangers at this point already. This is uh, 2003, started 2003, and I had all these messages on my phone that like people kept leaving. Suzanne from Fremantle, Suzanne from Fremantle. I don't want to call anybody. One day she caught me while I was at my desk at Channel V. And Suzanne from Fremantle, I, I want, want to talk to you about a show we've got. What show is it? Can't tell you. Okay. Well, you know, I'm doing, I'm, you know, we're the coolest kids on the block right now. I'm, I'm, I'm busy, you know, I don't know what I was doing. I was full of ego, man. And 
And she goes, no, we really should come down. I said, okay, I'll come down. So I went to their office, which is on Shandor Street in Crow's Nest, which is basically uh, it's an area of Sydney where a lot of production houses are, a lot of production companies are. And so I go in there. They were still – they just turned over from Grundy Television at that point in time. Grundy at the time or Fremantle at the time, they made the daggy old version of Wheel of Fortune and they made Neighbours. <laughs> All right, so they made five o'clock, strip five o'clock game shows for old people and soap operas. I was like, what? what is this? Like, what am I doing here? And I remember going into this uh, makeshift production office, uh, as often happens when a show starts before it's been given any real budget. They're just basically on their foldable desks and everything looks like it showed up in a box from Officeworks yesterday. It's like a real ramshackle bank, you know, like a field office, right? It's not even, doesn't look like a real office. And this guy named Greg sits there and apparently he tells me that I put my feet on his desk. Oh, no. Uh, and, I'm, and I had my trucker hat on real low and I'm looking at him under the brim like this and I'm like, so what's the, you know, what's this show? What's this show? And they made me sign an NDA. And he goes. So just just pause for a moment, Osher, because yeah. you know what I have in my mind right now as you're yeah. saying that? I have my, in my mind an image from Men in Black where that big alien, yeah. Has a little tiny alien inside him <laughs> pulling the little strings. Similar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Similar. It's pretty similar. That's, Sorry, right. That's about right. There's a very frightened little kid pulling all those strings. But out here, it was just, I don't know, I had some, I don't know, like a stupid $400 Bondi T-shirt on back then. Oh, it was a ridiculous, t- torn pair of jeans. Yeah, it was not, jeans. It was 2003, man. It was the fashion at the time. And he goes, oh, are you okay with live television? I'm like, I do three hours of live television I wake up and do that every day. What are you talking about? Of course, I was I was kind of like offended that he didn't recognize that we'd just come off tour. We're doing these massive Channel V tours with like thousands of kids in a field and a satellite dish out in the middle of the bush with Grinspoon playing and it was just freaking amazing. And he was like talking as if he was the only person that ever knew how to do live TV. I was like, get out of here. What the fuck have you got? So he goes, watch this. And he popped a VHS. That's how old it was. It was in four by three. He popped a VHS <laughs> into the tape and he pushed play. And it was Pop Idol. And, of course, working at Channel V, we knew what Pop Idol was. We'd seen the extraordinary success of, of that and therefore uh, then American Idol with Kelly Clarkson. And they'd gone back to back uh, the first season of American Idol. They basically finished their grand final and the next week we're doing auditions. So they did two seasons in the first year. So we were very, very well aware. And I'm like, look, the last, the last singing reality show in Australia was the third season of Pop Stars, which looked like it had been shot on three chip handy cams yeah. in someone's backyard. Yeah. It was very low production value, and uh, the, the the taste had really gone out of the market for those kind of shows. I'm like, mate, like I'm not going to do a show like shot on handy cams in someone's backyard. Nah, nah. If you're going to do this, it's going to have to be big. And his eyes just lit up, and he goes, "Oh, don't worry, it's going to be big." Six months later, I'm standing on the front steps of the Sydney Opera House while fireworks are exploding above my head and in my IFB in my ear I'm hearing, um, okay, now throw to the helicopter. No, the other helicopter. (laughs) We had two helicopters in the air. We had fireworks. It was 10,000 people. It was fucking amazing. But isn't that amazing to think about? So talk about choices and how choices are made and some you make, some you you don't make. They decided you. Yeah. And and so why did they decide you? I have no idea. But no, you do probably know. Well, Your looks was one thing, for sure. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Come on, Osher. I, I don't know. At the time, I was Andrew G. I had blonde hair. I was, I was ex, you know, exhibiting this outward, very, very, you know, kind of 
obtuse, you know, visual look of, uh, you know, I never shaved, uh, I wore weird necklaces, I, I had this strange blonde hair um, and I was just always very excited about wanting to play. Um, but I loved pop music. I wanted to always play Hanson on our show, but then I would just go, when it came time to throw to the Mr. Bungle song, I would give him a three-minute dial, you know, <laughs> down the barrel. I was like, this is why Mr. Bungle's important, all right? So Mike Patton from Face No More. So what did they see in you? Uh, what do the, you think they saw in you to um, say he's the person? Because that catapulted you, didn't it? I mean, oh, yeah, me and James, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, like any like any time you've done a great campaign, you know, you'll be in an event later and go, oh, I recommended you for that. And you go, oh, actually, you know, I know how it happened, but okay. You know, there was many, many people. I guess many people had said, oh, if you're looking for two people, you've got to get these two guys. All right, because in, in in, as anybody knows, like may, people may not, may not know, when you buy a television format from overseas, it's essentially like buying a franchise of a store from overseas, all right? You don't buy McDonald's and then change the recipe of the Big Mac. You buy McDonald's and with McDonald's, you get the production manual and you get what's called a Bible, um, which is the the how-to or the instructions of how this show is made, shot for shot sometimes with all the fonts and all the supers and, and you know, the casting and all this kind of stuff. And in that Bible is, this is the two-hander because it was started in the UK with Ant and Deck, who are the greatest two-hander hosting team that ever lived mm. and they tried to replicate that in the first season of American Idol with Brian Dunkelman and Ryan Seacrest and it's really funny you watch their first opening pieces to camera they're word for word Ant and Dex and it just Ant and Dex was improv right these two are just like going yes that's right Ryan it's, it's terrible it's terrible but and essentially Seacrest went by himself after that but they wanted you know, so they wanted a two-hander so the call goes out go okay we're going to do Idol we need two guys we need two guys and so it was fairly you know evident to everyone that they must have asked was like we need two hosting guys we need people who are already a team and they look at me and James and go it's them they're the guys so is it at that stage that you became aware that you were famous. Like at what stage on that journey? Because, you know, you talk about the young kid mm. hyped up, sitting at the table, feet up, yeah. saying, you know, beg me and I'll, I might do yeah. it, you know. Oh, but, but, so, but, but so oh, there's, God, there's so ego, right? There's ego. <laughs> it is what it is. It was all uh, ego, man. It's, it's, it's all ego, yes, yeah. But, but when did you realize you were famous? Um, it's a relative thing, fame. But when did you realize you were famous? When I was, did it? Click I was on in? channel. I was on channel V. I was doing my groceries at Broadway Shopping Centre, which is uh, in a west of Sydney. Because um, so I lived in in Piermont at the time, a, a stone's throw from where Foxtel was, and my younger brother uh, was visiting, and we were doing groceries. And we were on one of the travelators, kind of very slow movement. I never knew how slow it was. Uh, for someone who's got social phobia, you, you kind of imagine that everyone is staring at you the whole time. Mm. And then, uh, so I'd go and I always thought, you know, people, you know, whatever. And then my brother says, everyone's staring at you. Everyone's really staring at you. You see that? Yeah, look, that person, that person, they're all staring at you. I was just on Channel V at the time. But I guess, you know, that was the first moment when my brother called it out. I was like, oh, shit, it's, it's oh, I'm not imagining it. Yeah, this is actually happening, people. And I was just a familiar face, right? But that was just on, on channel. But it came very, very slowly because in radio, I'd done five years of radio in yes. Brisbane, all right? So I, I was fairly visual. I was on the street a lot. So people would recognize me from big station events and stuff like that. And so I would, there was a recognition uh, that it was very slow, 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 slow. I just wonder, though, with that, um, if... You know, if 
the relationship between fame and mental illness. And if, if you know, if mental illness is a, is a fire you know, mm. that, that's in you or is fame fuel? Oh, look, I, I absolutely remember times in my life where it was just this, it was like a loop that wouldn't stop of stop looking at me. Why aren't you looking? Oh, my God, no one's looking at me. Why do you have to keep looking at me? Are they looking? Mm. <laughs> like it was just like bang, 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 bang. It was just bang, 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 bang. And uh, it was so, so strange to to be in that, to be stuck in that. Um, Especially from such a young age. Uh, I, I'm not – I would never consider myself famous. But being on a number of shows over a period yeah. of time, people do recognize me. And I'm very thankful that that happened much older in my life because yeah. I don't know if I would have been able to cope and deal with that level of attention or focus at such yeah. a young age. You had it since roughly I teens. was about 20 when I started in radio. 25 was when I hit yeah. – um, 25 was when I hit Channel V. Idol was 28. So I was 28 when that happened. Um, and look, this is a time before the internet. It's a time before multi-channels. It's a time before Freeview. There were five channels on television. Foxtel market penetration was less than 5%. Mm. So 7.30 Sunday, everybody watched the same thing. Yeah, I watched it as well. Yeah. But let so, me, so but let like me, it was let, millions of people watched that show yes. every week. And, yeah. and let's go to another decision or choice that was made. This yeah. one, I don't know if you were in the room or not. Yeah. I remember when James said, I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. And I remember thinking, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Like you guys were the perfect match. Take us through that decision. What you knew or didn't know. I, I, I only know when he told me. Oh, so you were definitely not in the room. No, 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 no. I only knew when he told me. I had an idea. I had an idea that the the love for it had left him and he was always he's always been a very, very brave man to just, you know, do what he loves and go, mm, I'm not feeling this, I'm out. Don't know what the next thing I'm gonna do is, but I don't want to do this. And for me, I would need to have the, the next at the time I would have needed to have the next vine ready to grab onto. Um, but Jim just said, like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it next year. And um, I remember because I basically learned how to do that show and learned how to host as as part of a team, you know. And when you're when you're part of a team, you're able to write for each other and you're able to, you know, you know, I, I can give you this and you can work off that. And and James, you know, if you've ever spent any time with James Matheson, he is the funniest man the most intelligent man. He reads a book a week. Yeah. He probably reads the paper cover to cover every day uh, and he still has time to be an incredible dad to his two kids and, you know, run for office and all kinds of things. He's a very, very smart So what was the conversation man. you had with him? What was that closed-door conversation when he said, I'm out? Oh, he just said, I'm not going to do it next And what did you say? Oh, I said, I'll, I'll miss you so much. <laughs> I said, I don't know how to do it without you. You know, you're, 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 I'll miss you heaps. What are you going to do? So, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I think, he, I think at the time he said, I'm going to do some writing stuff and there's some things I want to work on. But yeah. I'm, Your anxiety must have went straight through the roof. No, no, it didn't. I just, I knew that I would be okay because I'd done solo hosting before. Uh, if they decided, they did ask, you know, are you going to be okay to host yep. it solo? And, you know, you know, there was, they did decide not to bring another person on to fill his shoes um, because in America they'd, been successful with a single host and so we kept on with a single host. Um, but I do remember the first few shows without him. It was like basically having to relearn how to do my job all over again mm. because I now had to take up all the space on the on the screen. Mm. I had to now take up all the space on the on the in, in the in the segments and and I 
is nowhere near as funny as Jim. Mm. All right, everything I learned about if I've ever made anybody laugh, I learned all of that from James. Mm. I learned all of it from James. And so not having him there every day, he has amazing timing and mm. just not having him there every day was really tough. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. I don't think I could do Groon. It's not the same level of popularity, right? But I, can't, I don't think I could do Groon without Russell. In fact, I can't do Groon with Russell, but I couldn't imagine <laughs> not having him there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Looking at yeah. me disapprovingly week after week. <laughs> well, it is. It, look, it really was. It was that, you know, I don't know. And I had to learn how to do it myself. It took a couple of shows and it was a bit clunky at first, mm. but I got there. I got there. I had a great amount of support. I had great, you know, great producers to help me, you know, craft it and make sure all the energy was right across the length of the breaks and stuff like that. But it was tough. I really, I really missed having him there. But ultimately what that did is it taught me how to, okay, so now I, this is how you carry a live national show by yourself. All right, let's go. And I was all about it. And it was in that it was actually it was the season before or the season before that. I think it was yeah, I think it was the season just before that, two thousand eight season, that I'd started to do things like meditate and visualize before the show started. Um, and I would you know, I would basically sit in my room and kind of go through it in my head of like, okay, this is how many steps it is to the camera. This is where the camera's going to be. This is where, um, you know, I'm going to find the order, going to find the crane camera amongst the 600 people. I'm going to deliver that line. I'm going to turn to that one there and then I'm going to throw it to Jim. I knew exactly what the script was. And so then by the time you get out there, oh, I've done this before. It's fine. And then so I started to use those visualization techniques and stuff like that and meditating before the show and things like that. So we're already begun to do that. And so that just really ramped up. So by the time the 2009 season came, along um oh, that was very much a part of of how i did i never drank on on show days yeah. i i was always very much like how can i be as focused as i possibly can be because i knew i needed everything around me to, but, but to let's just that. pause on the practical tools that you just mentioned yeah. on the way through uh, both visualization and meditation are probably two of the most used tools by the most successful people on the planet uh, visualization is incredibly powerful because what you visualize happens to you physically yeah. and uh, so I visualize a lot in filming. It's very similar to what you said, knowing where I need to be, trying to visualize the outcome, seeing myself in that situation yeah. preps me for that situation because yeah. visualizing is like perfect performance in your mind, which leads you to that performance yeah. closer to that meditation. I can't say enough. Uh, and I know you can't either. I'd recommend two apps. Uh, again, I, I don't know about you, Ash. I don't endorse anything. I don't make money from stuff like that. So uh, Headspace, excellent app, uh, and Calm are two apps that I yeah. use. Let's go to now. So we're on your journey. You That decision, James leaves. You are now really famous. Like millions of people are watching every <laughs> week. When do you get married? Uh, the first time? Yes. Uh, I got married the first time in 2008. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about choices and decisions that you make in your life. <laughs> okay. Uh, why did you choose to get married? What was the decision-making process in your mind? Um, I think why does, why does anyone, you know, choose to get married? That's because, why I'm asking you. Because it feels like, well, at the time, you know, that's, that's what I felt was the, the, the best thing to do. And, it was, you know, it was what I wanted to do. And um, it was, uh, you know, we were at that point in our lives and at that point in the relationship and yeah, let's, this is, this is going to be good. And, you know, I could see that whatever it was that I'd been doing, I didn't want to do anymore. And, you know, the possibility of, of doing this, trying to make a life that I could see my friends making and I could see that there was a lot of happiness that can be had by, you know, committing and, and, and being, I've been in a long-term relationship before. And so the idea of wanting to, you know, really kind of seal the deal and, you know, really commit and, and, and see what can be of two people together. Um, 
I was, you know, I was really into it. And it does sound to me because I've been down a rocky road like this before. Uh, it does sound to me from a choice perspective, though, it was a little bit of a concept that you were marrying. I, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's right. And I do I do kind of write about that in the book in that I was more into the idea of of what it could be than, than what it was. And I through the course of that relationship, I did get down a bit when there was a gap between what I thought it was and what it was. Yes. And um, I made my ex-wife wrong for that. Yep. And uh, ultimately she was like, mm, okay. <laughs> Eventually that relationship broke down. Okay. But yeah. let's, let's pause on that. So young person listening to this on the cusp of getting married. Yeah. Uh, any advice you would give? Uh, Free advice for what it's worth. But uh, do, let's- do premarital counseling. Absolutely, 100% do it. Before the marriage. Absolutely. Proposal. Yep. Uh, well, after the proposal because you kind of want it to be a, a surprise. But the the first 10 weeks of, you know, when the two of you meet and all the dopamine and serotonin is flooding through your system and the testosterone and the estrogen are just flooding and flowing and everything's squishy and juicy and glorious – that won't last, no, all right? And I just want to say, it's not 10 weeks. That could potentially be three years. Be careful <laughs> of the timing. <laughs> it won't last, yes. all right? And, and don't be sad that it's gone yes. because it, that's not how our brains work. Once we're bonded, okay, here you are, here I am, great. Now we get on with the practicalities of it. So if you find someone that can then help you get to the next point, you'd be, you know, you'd be astonished. And I'm really grateful that I, you know, even after my first marriage broke down, that I met, I, I'm grateful that it, to be honest, I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to then go, okay, that didn't work. Now, what was my part in it? Ah, oh, most of it. Okay, so what's yes. some work that I can do so that never happens again? And okay, I, had- I want to go there for yeah. briefly for a second, but yeah. I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on this, but I, I, I do want to go back uh, to that choice. Yeah. But I'll, my advice for those on the cusp of getting married, uh, I can only speak from a male perspective, uh, and – if, if you are thinking either I should marry her or, or not, then you're not ready to get married. Oh, yeah, and I right. know a lot of people that mentioned to me and very close friends of mine that are like, well, either I marry her or, you know, or I'm going to go off and do something else. If the real alternative is to go off and do something else and that is an actual alternative, well, then you're probably not far enough down the track to commit to actually being married. I would so agree. Yeah. That, that, so let's go back to the other choice or decision that was made. Divorce. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's um, you are happily married now to uh, an incredible person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that moment has defined a bit of who you are, obviously, mm-hmm. on your journey. That choice. How did that choice – by the way, if, you're, uh, if you're, you can't see, if you're not seeing this uh, – Osher has probably for the first time has gone to cover up a little bit. He's <laughs> he's crossed his arms. He's yeah, covered his body face. language going on and, today. You know, I know what he's thinking right now. He's thinking I control the edit. This is going nowhere near the uh, the actual podcast. But take me through that moment. First, which which moment? I'm, marrying Audrey? Or? No, no, because we're gonna we're gonna come to Audrey. okay. Yeah, uh, the decision for divorce. Yeah, uh, this is a very hard thing for me me to say, having you know, but. Who made that decision and how was that decision made? Um, I had followed a pattern of um, never being the one to make the call to end a relationship. Yeah. All right. In my, my whole life, I'd, I'd been the one that just kept hanging on. And that was the case in this situation. 
my ex-wife uh, very understandably had gone, no, nah, that's it. I can't do anymore and I totally understand why because I was I'd, I'd stopped drinking but I hadn't done any of the work um, that it takes to stay sober. All right, so I essentially um, – Essentially, I'd, I'd basically come off of my meds, which was the alcohol that I was using to suppress the the uncomfortable emotions that I was yeah. having and just gone cold turkey and just ha- had no coping strategies around that. And um, I uh, did a lot of damage to the relationship because of that. And and in a, in a great move of, and a you know, very – I, uh, one that I respect greatly of, of self-protection. She was like, mm, I'm out. I can't do, can't do this anymore. But why, just pause for a moment yeah. on that, Osher. So why do you think you don't end things like that? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I've, I've, at the time, at the time, I think uh, it was because I had a sense of that I, I, I wasn't worthy of, um, it was, I think worthiness has a lot to do with that. You know, I think worthiness has a lot to do with the fact that I just kept holding on Um because I, I don't know if I was worried that I'd ever find something again or, you know, I was also – obviously nobody wants it to not yeah. work out. You know, mm-hmm. you want to hold on. You want to keep holding on. But I – you know, the red flags and, you know, all that sort of stuff had sailed past us months ago, if not years, uh, which is often the case, you know. It's often the case. Um, so, yeah, so we'd, we'd tried to, to get help because we understood that we were in a bit of trouble. And then, um, yeah, then one day she goes, look um, – uh, it's all, it's, I'm done. And I, you know, initially I was, I think in the space of a breath, I was like, okay, I get it. All right. Can you remember the last thing you said to her when you left each other? Can you remember what you said? Um, what do you, I mean, we, we have still, yeah, no, we no, have no, still no, spoken now. over time. Yes, of course. But do you remember that moment in the heat of that moment when it was all said and done and yeah. you were literally separating from each other? You were going to make a physical separation. Do you remember what you said to her? Um, or did you say anything specific to her? Uh, no, I, I, I think I, I don't really recall. I was, I was, my head was spinning, you know. I was, I, I was, in, I was in acceptance. But it was a, you know, it, acceptance was the the wooden door in the yes. in the North Atlantic at the end of the Titanic. I was kind of just kind of grasping for the acceptance, you know, it was like just kind of holding on to keep it. There was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of not. And uh, did she say why? Like I know you know, and I know in a, a relationship yeah. you know it's going down, and you yeah. try your best, and as you said, you went and got help, and you didn't mm. you didn't give up, and all of that. But did she did she actually articulate? Why it's ending? There was there was no need. It was it was really clear. It was really clear. You know why we were just you know nothing was working. That's that's all right. Uh, okay, so we have a, a kind of mass amount of popularity. Mm. You um, then you make then you make an interesting decision mm-hmm. where or I don't know how that decision was was made. Yeah, uh, you go back to focus on radio. Oh, okay. That, that decision was made. Oh, this is after Idol. Yes. Okay. So I had this concept. It was actually, it was actually the, the day that I met my ex-wife, the very day I met my ex-wife and she lived, it was the, the December 30th, 2003. I was a month out of the first season of Australian Idol. It was the biggest thing ever. All right. And I was like, well, what do I do now? I have no idea what to do next. Like, where do you go from here? Mm. What do you do after you've done this? It doesn't, 
like one in four people watched that, like or yeah. one in five people watched that. It was fucking humongous. What do you do instead? And then I met this girl on the beach, and she was telling me about you know life in LA and this, that, and the other. And I thought, I thought, what if I did a show in LA for Australia? Then I might be able to live over there, explore what I might be able to have a maybe have a relationship with this person, maybe explore what life might be like there, maybe get a job over there. I mean, if I want to be the best in the world, that's where the best in the world do it. It took us six years, but we got that show up. And that show started at the end of 2009. Uh, we used to broadcast every Saturday night, which was Sunday afternoon here. And we did a live, first time no one, anyone had ever done a... Hey, Frank. If you hear a sound, it. uh, it's because it's, their it's gorgeous dog, dog is attacking yeah, yeah. something on the floor. It's, everybody's podcast always has a visit from an animal. <laughs> animal. Um, so it was the end of 2009 and I've been doing a show called Take 40 Australia, which was uh, this, this big week. So you had a gap down. after Idol where it was like you were a television personality, as you said, one in five, one in four watched you every Sunday yeah. night. It was hugely popular, a massive hit, yeah. and then it ended. Right, right. Well, I didn't know it ended. I didn't had. I didn't know it had ended. All right. So the end of two thousand nine, it was all still very up in the air. All right. And so thankfully, I just moved to America, just got my green card, and we'd got this show up um, that we'd all been trying very hard for years to work on a show for Australia from America. And it was while we were doing that show, which was now called the Hot Hits Live from LA. Um, while we we're doing that show, normally if you're going to do another season of your big yearly television show, you get a phone call going, hey, you know, we look like we're going to go again. Are you free for five months? Or, hey, it looks like we're going to go again. When can he be back? No phone calls came. You know, I started calling executive producers going, hey, what do you reckon? Well, I haven't heard anything yet. I haven't heard anything yet. Isn't it remarkable? Another <laughs> massive decision that would impact and change yeah. your life that was made with you not in the room. Mm. And, I, and eventually I had to read about it in a, in a newspaper. Uh, which kind of sucked. It kind of sucked to, to to hear that the you know this massive job was going away uh, without you know anybody actually calling or, or saying anything. That that kind of sucked. But you know that's that's the way it was. But thankfully, I had this radio job. So, uh, but I was under a lot of stress and a lot of tension to make it work because now I had committed to um, two mortgages based on massive television job, which was now not there <laughs> so i'm trying to you know service these this 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 mortgage uh on a, on a house i bought in um australia actually i had bought two houses in australia, two apartments in australia by then and uh, looking to buy another one in los angeles and uh on you know a, a quarter of the money that i was on and that was, I was in an enormous amount of stress, and that's when that's when everything started to fall off. That's when the wheels started to fall off, and and I, in your relationship or in your life, in my life, because you life. know the idea of with all you know, managing the stress, alcohol. Mm. I'd been you know, I'd been using alcohol to, to to kind of manage that stuff, and it just it just got worse and worse and out of control. Yeah, not to mention that it must be incredibly difficult, and there must be a huge unknown when you're famous and you get married, because mm. I often wouldn't know i mean i you know I, this was never a problem for me but i don't think my wife would have married me if i was popular All right i don't think she would have made that decision she's not that type of person and i guess you would always be second guessing whether that person has married a concept known mm. as at the time andrew g you know mm. this big concept mm. people everyone knows you know and then yeah. when the wheels start falling off 
for decisions that are made that you're not even a part of, yeah, that would be a dramatic shift in your life. Oh well, gratefully, my my ex wife was in the in the media industry, so she understood that you know big shows are great when they're there, but then they go away, uh, and they're often go away without your control. Absolutely nothing to do with you. You might have done the best job ever, 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 ever. But then someone else has another show and it's bigger than yours and doesn't make financial sense to continue. Um, so thankfully she was quite understanding of that. Um, having, you know, been a, a, you know, she had experiences like um, she was signed to a record company and then two months after she got signed to the record company, the record company got bought by another record company and they just dropped everyone that hadn't recorded yet. And she was one of them. Were you at equal levels of fame? At I don't the time? know. No, my ex-wife was a fucking megastar. Is is you know mm. she's essentially the the like I guess you'd call it the the Kylie Minogue of Israel. You know she was the soap opera star who released a massive pop single and has gone on to extraordinary things. Yeah, she's a very talented, very famous uh, person there, and um, yeah, she still continues to have a, a magnificent career. Okay, park that for a moment. Uh, the decision for Bachelor. Now, before we go. <laughs> Anywhere near yeah. Bachelor, I'm gonna I'm gonna clarify that my family, uh, they watched Bachelor. You know this. Yeah, uh, they've watched. Uh, all, my girls watched the season. I've been very open about that. I see it as uh, reverse role modeling. <laughs> uh, I say to my girls, please don't ever end up on the Bachelor. But hey, let's watch this as a societal experiment. Uh, it's, quite, tell, it's quite fun. Give me, take me through your decision making, your choice process there. Well, at that point. At that point, I'd kind of figured a little more about how the universe works. All right, mm. I'd figured out the, the biggest breaks in my career had always come when I had swum out to the boat and not waited for the boat to come into the wharf. All right, that's how I got my job in radio. I I, I just wrote letters to all the radio stations mm. in Brisbane, and, and thankfully, one of the people that worked at a radio station in Brisbane knew me from when I was a roadie and recognized my face from the photo I put in with the application, and that's how I, I got in there. Um, when it came to the the Channel V thing, uh, that was based someone off radio, called me and said, hey, Nathan Harvey's just left Channel V, send them a tape. So I made this tape and I just sent it in. Yep. All right, Even though they never advertised it, they were looking for people. Yep. So I just sent this tape in and I got that. Um, There's a super life lesson in that, and a very practical thing is uh, that I've learned as well throughout my life is you're, you're always surprised when you ask. Yeah. Because then there is a possibility yeah. of an answer. But if you never ask, yeah. there's little to no possibility yeah. of an answer because you haven't even asked. Precisely. And persistent asking yeah. is often better than uh, exact performance. So the ask that happened around Bachelor was that here I was living in Los Angeles. I was sober. I was single. And I didn't know how to meet people that didn't involve going to nightclubs. So I, like millions of others, went on to my phone and downloaded a dating app and started swiping left and right. I, like millions of others, discovered that when you go on dates with some of these people, the photos are five years and maybe five kilos in the wrong direction or the right direction, depending on you know what, what you're up for, and that the person sitting in front of you isn't who they were presenting. Like occasionally, you know, maybe one out of one out of three or four would be, oh yeah, you're who you are. And in fact, the common question, common compliment that I would get would be like, oh, you look like your photo. You know, people put a photo up of, you know, five years ago when they were looking their best and that's not... Anyway, so I was like, there's a show in this. Mm. There's a show in this new... Because it was all very new. It was 2013. It was all very new Tinder. I'd only been around for maybe nine months, ten months. So I thought, oh, there's a show in this. So I sat down and I created... Because here I was, I was unemployed at the time. Uh, uh, Hot Hits Live from LA had just vanished. At the end of 2012, it had gone. On the same day, I lost the job for Bondi Rescue. So the two jobs that was paying my bills were now gone. I was now 
unemployed, single, divorced, uh, alcoholic, <laughs> and living in a foreign country, paying rent out of my savings. And famous. <laughs> well, famous in Australia, uh, but not famous yep. at all in Los Angeles where I was living. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'd met these two people, uh, these two TV producers who – What's always fascinated me, Todd, is that all people need is permission to behave. That's all they need. And these two people went, I know you can make TV formats. Go ahead. Make the next show that you're going to host. Okay, I will. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to create the next TV show that I'm going to host. What do I want? Here's where the ask comes in. Hold on. I want to go down to Australia for about 10 weeks. I want to host a show about dating, about love, because that's the kind of where I am in the world right now. So I created this um, show. It was an in-studio game show based on but know. just 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 pause sorry yeah i'll just pause for a moment at this stage of your life you would be anything but an expert or necessarily a positive role model <laughs> in dating am i off or have i missed no, something not in the story not at all because my my experience was that the last time i was single there was no iphones there was no cameras on phones there was no facebook there was no apps there was nothing so my experience of being brand new to all this was as valid as anybody else's and it was all very new and very real. And it's like, let's make a show about this experience that everybody's having because this is all very new for a lot of people. And and certainly being at the time while I was, I was 38, 39. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, here I am. I'm another horse guy trying to figure out how to date people when all the technology and ways of dating is so new to me and I'm sober so I can't go out and just meet someone at a bar. I have to find other ways to do it. <laughs> and so – I created this TV show that I could host, that I could showcase, you know, having fun with people and, you know, making jokes about stuff and, you know, playing off of different people. And it was, it was a big screen and it was basically because you have to, when you enter these dating profiles, you have to answer all these questions. All right. And it was basically trying to play off people's biases of having five super hot guys or five super hot girls showing the exact five answers that these people gave and the, the hero had to then match which answers were with which face. And the whole idea on one level was to, you know, see how much they wanted the really hot one or the one that they wanted sexually the most mm. to be the one that matched with them uh, emotionally. And it was always never the, it was never the case. And we did, I did a few test runs, which is always fun when you, you know, you know filmed a few of them, but I don't know where the footage is. Um, you know, did a couple of test runs where, you know, have people on folding chairs and I was like, yeah, this could work, this could work. So I packaged this whole thing up and I was coming down to Australia to um, go to my cousin's wedding down in Adelaide. And while I was down here, I called my management at the time and I said, can you just line me up some pitch meetings? I'm a free agent. Let's just pitch. The first people I pitched to were Network 10. Because, you know, I'd had such a great relationship with them. It was, you know, courtesy and, you know, an honor, you know. If, like, you and know, this you, is you, not a plug for Network 10, but I have to say they're incredibly good to deal with. Right. They, and, have, but, a young, they have a young attitude towards yeah. production and filmmaking. So I went and I pitched uh, Beverly McGarvey and she bought it in the room. Like that. She bought it in the room. It was like, well, shit. I'm a TV producer now. And we went into development. And so what that looks like is I worked with a bunch of producers and we were trying to knock out the the, the version of the show that I'd made into something that could strip for 5.30 every night. And yep. like, how do we turn this into, into a dating show? So we're about six or maybe 10 weeks into that development process with this great team of producers when my manager called and said, hey, do you want to come down and do The Bachelor? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. He said, it's a 10-week shoot. Can you do it? I said, yes, I can. So you asked about, you know, you asked me before and we talked about the ask. Exactly what I wanted was answered. Well, there you go. Part one of my interview with Todd Sampson. Part two is coming next week. If you can't wait to find out what happens... 
you can always get the audiobook. Uh, you can get it right now on iTunes and you, you or Audible. And in a few clicks from now, you could be listening to the sound of my voice reading you my story while my wife directs me and says, Do it again. You sounded like a sycophant just then. Bless her. I'm very lucky to have her in my life. I'm very lucky to have her to keep check on me and the ego monster that lives within me. She is an incredible human being. And she actually shows up. She shows up in part two of this conversation, which is really, really lovely. Thank you so very much for all the support through the week. A massive thank you to my producer, Andy Ma, who pulled off a humongous effort to make these episodes happen. Todd Sampson, I cannot thank enough. Rachel Barrett, you're the best for making Todd and I find the time to make this happen. And you for listening, for being here with me for 247 other episodes and getting me to today. Because here we are. Today's the day. And this is the first day of the rest of my life as a published author. And you can look and go, ah, I've been on that journey. I remember that point when he was in the middle of all that shit. And I remember that episode. I remember the intro for that episode. I remember what that sounded like. I remember the sound of his voice. Now you know what was going on. All right. Thanks for being here. You're the greatest. If you need me through the week, send us your email at gmail.com. Shoot me a photo of you holding the book. That'd be funny. Uh, find me on Instagram. Oh, and I'll, I'll see you on the Facebook group. That Facebook group's fantastic. She is good. I'm so grateful it's there. All right. Oh my God. <laughs> We're really doing it. Okay. It's going to be all right. I'm going to go do some squats. See you next week. I love you. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.